Thank you, um, Alex, for just bringing us uh, to understand the significance of this day. It's a good Friday. All around, uh, someone asked me at work, actually, we have an American client, and they said, oh, are they going to have a holiday in America as well? Because, you know, it's, is it just a good Friday in Australia? And I suppose that um, just serves to highlight the, um, the problem that not enough people know about Good Friday and what it's all about. The Gospels uh, give us a blow-by-blow account of Calvary. They tell us what happened and how it happened, but um, I'd like to, us to consider a passage just very briefly this morning about why. Why did it all happen? What's the reason for all the bloodshed and what's the reason for all the nails and the torture and the mocking and the spitting and the making fun of and the crown of thorns and all of this? Why? The why sheds the purpose behind the pain and the suffering, but what does it mean? And more more importantly, what does it mean for us today, 2,000 years later? And to answer that, I'd like us to consider a passage in Galatians So if you wouldn't mind turning there, if you have your Bibles, please. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. Galatians 4, 4 to 7. You can follow along with me as I read from the Word of God, and I ask that you give your prayerful attention to His Word. This is what it says. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. May God bless the reading of his word. I want you to grasp that the purpose of Calvary is deeply, deeply, deeply intimate and personal. You cannot leave today unaffected by the events of this 2,000 years ago because the implications and the ramifications for your life are huge. It's a question of your identity. It's a question of who you are and who you're going to be for the rest of time. There's a goldmine of theological truths in this passage and we don't have the time to go through all of it. But I just want to hone in on one theme and that is from slaves to sons. It's the theme of adoption. But when the fullness of the time came... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why on earth would he do that? So that he might redeem those who were under the law. And what's the result of that? That we might receive the adoption as sons. The only point that I want to make is this, and that the purpose of redemption, the purpose behind all this blood, the purpose behind all this suffering is sonship. The purpose of Calvary is sonship. We are adopted. We are redeemed 
to become adopted sons. And this is where history becomes practical theology. This is where an event 2,000 years ago still has meaning and relevance for us today because when we stand at the foot of the cross, we don't just see our Savior's blood, we also see the blood that was used to purchase us. We don't just see the wrath of God poured out upon His Son, we see the grace and the mercy of God that was poured out on us. We don't just see wrath and condemnation, we see mercy and grace. We don't just see the Father's pleasure in crushing His own Son, we also see the Father's pleasure and plan in bringing back many sons and daughters to glory. We don't just see the Father turning His back on His Son, we also see the Father welcoming us as his sons. Every act of violence that was done on Christ is an act of love and peace that brings us back. The two sides of the same coin. We cannot divorce and isolate the pain and the suffering from the joy that we have. We cannot uh, separate all the scorn and the mocking because if it wasn't there, we would not be here. As the writer famously put it, the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might become sons of God. Calvary is where our hearts weep at the suffering that is caused. Calvary is where our souls rejoice at the gift that we receive. But, make no mistake, Calvary is also where the greatest offense is caused. There's joy, there's sorrow, but there's also massive offense. It implies that we are not the sons and daughters of God by birth. It implies that every human is not born as a child of God. Because Calvary says in no uncertain terms, sonship requires redemption. Calvary says, you are only a son if there is a cross. Before we go any further, please recognize this and let it drill down into the very depths of your soul that being a child of God is not something that happens to you when you were born. It's not by, it does not come naturally by birth. I don't care whether you are, you've been a Christian for all your life, or whether you've been a Christian just for a week, or whether you're not a Christian at all, or whether you don't believe in God at all. The point is, when a person comes into this world through their mother's womb, and we have a few who've just done that, they come into this world not as a child of God, but an enemy. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. That is just so horrible. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. The horrible reality of the human condition is that our conception is in sin and our birth is in sin. Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb these who speak lies go astray from birth. And someone may say, oh, that's just talking about the wicked. It's not talking about everyone. It's just talking about those who are wicked. But they haven't read Psalm 53, 2 and 3. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's anyone who understands. God is looking down even now and seeing, is there anyone who understands? And anyone who seeks after God, every one of them has turned aside together they have become corrupt. There is not one who does good. There is not one. The human condition is, is a pandemic. 
There is not one who does good. There is not one who understands. You may be a pope. You may be a priest. You may have been on a thousand pilgrimages. You may have burned a thousand candles. You may have given pots and pots of money to every conceivable deity that is in your house. You may be recognized very commonly and widely as a very deeply spiritual person. But Calvary calls you a spiritual outcast. Calvary says that you are not a spiritual giant to be commended. You are actually a spiritual rebel who needs to be pitied. That's why the cross is such a stumbling block of offense to those who are outside of the kingdom. Every other religion teaches that the people are born in a state of goodness and innocence. And as they grow older, then that's when they become corrupt and they start thinking bad thoughts and they start doing bad things and they start becoming corrupt. But if they can become corrupt, then they can also become good because then somehow by doing good things, they can somehow negate the wrong that they have done. But God's word says that there is not even one who does good. We are born spiritually stillborn. We are born into an earthly family, yes. But we are born outside the family of God. You know, this wasn't always the case. This is not God's design. God wanted us to be his children. He created Adam as, as his son. And if you read the, the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Luke, in the gospel of Luke 3, this is how it begins in verse 23. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Matthai, and, and so on. The son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. And it goes all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 38. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Mankind was created to be the son of God. God's desire in making humanity was for them to be his children in his own image. But when Adam sinned, he lost that privilege. Fellowship with God was lost and consequently sonship for the rest of humanity, not just Adam, was lost. Colossians 1.21 says, We became alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Hostile in mind. Outside we're brilliant. Outside, we're fantastic. But the hostility that God hates, the hostility that, that is against God, is in our minds, and people can't see that, and we sometimes can't see it, or we are, choose to be blind to it. Ephesians 2 says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. God creates us to be his children. But then owing to the corruption of Adam, we become children of wrath. And from then on, we spend the rest of our lives embracing and enjoying sin. And it's like a vicious circle where we love the sin that, that, uh, that, that entangles us. And we perpetuate it and we love it and we indulge it. And we go further and further and further away from God till we are his, his enemies. And there's, there's no escape from the spiritual quicksand. But... Amen for that. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Hallelujah. This is where the events of Calvary 2,000 years ago get so personal. This is not just some event that you can look back and say, yeah, whatever. You can do that with plenty of events. You can look back at the Holocaust and say, yeah, stuff happens. You can look back at Hiroshima, you can look back at all the devastating events of, of history and shrug your shoulders. But you can't do that with the cross. Because it confronts us with the inevitable question, am I a child of God? Or am I an enemy of God? Have I been adopted into his family or am I still a stranger? Is God my father or is he my judge? God's word says, unless you have been redeemed by the blood of the Christ, unless your sins have been paid for in full by the death of his son, you cannot be his son. Calvary says that the price for your sin is too high for you to pay. And that's why it requires God to make the payment for you. If you think that you can pay for you, the price for your sin, you have no idea of how much that sin is worth. You have no idea of God's standard of holiness. Calvary says that you are not a son because of what you do. You are a son because of what Christ has done for you. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I don't know if, we, if on this side of eternity we will truly appreciate the beauty of those words. That's beautiful. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Not only does God send His Son to die for His enemies, He also gives them the capacity to speak to Him in an intimate way. Abba, Father. How beautiful is that? I know there are many people, and I think there are people within, uh, amongst us as well, who have not experienced the love of a father. The love of a father is completely alien to them. They don't know what it means. But God is saying here, He has put the Spirit of His Son into us so that we can cry out to Him. We actually have the ability. We don't have it if He does not give it to us. People in the Middle East still use this term, Abba. It's a term of um, endearment, just uh, familiarity and, 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 um, and um, closeness, intimacy. It's like Papa. I love the, uh, I had to translate this um, message of mine into Hindi because my mother wanted me to, to record it to, um, to, for my church back in India. And I was reading the, the, um, the Hindi version of this verse. And the verse which says that he has brought us together is a, is a beautiful word which just talks about friendship. It just talks about 
people just you know getting together in, in just joy and oneness. What was lost totally and utterly through Adam is now gained fully and comprehensively through Christ. The son that Adam was and the son that Adam the sonship that he lost, the Son of God now gains for you and me. Therefore, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. The heir is, is the inheritor, the one who has the rightful ownership of the father's estate. He is the one who receives the inheritance. He is the one who is the benefactor of all that the father possesses. And I believe that this is the most confronting part of this text. Because it drives home the fact that sonship is both a privilege and a responsibility. It is a privilege because we have been adopted into the household of God and it is a responsibility because we have been adopted into the household of God. We're not just this... Uh, uh, yes, it is a great privilege for me to be a son of my father and for me to have his name and to be the inheritor of all that he has. But it is something totally, completely, utterly different to know that I am the son of the living God. And all that he has. Do we grasp that? We may love and say, yes, I am the son of God. Hey man, hallelujah, praise the Lord. But do we understand the responsibility? I reckon many Christians find it easier to believe in a literal, historical, six-day creation than it is to believe that they are the sons of God. Do you believe uh, that God sent a flood? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe that God sent a flood. Yeah, absolutely. He destroyed the whole world. Do you believe in the virgin birth? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes. Do you believe that Jesus died? Yes, yes. Do you believe he rose again from the dead? Oh, absolutely, yes. Do you believe you are son of God? Oh, yeah, I suppose. But are you living like that? Does it show in your life? Do people see it? Do people see it and say, there goes the Son of God? Do people recognize that about you? When, when sometimes you see Christians, you don't see sons of God. You see people whose lives are crippled with fear and uncertainty and worry. You see lives that are marked by moral compromise. You see lives that are driven by secular pursuits instead of spiritual ones. You see people who are more reflective of the world than of the Father. What about you? Are you conducting yourself like a son? Are your priorities those of a son? Are you, is your thinking that of a son? Does your life reflect the life of a son, what does your speech sound like? Does your life mirror the life of a son? And You know, a lot of evangelicals today will say, ah, oh, you know, I'm a son, I'm free. Hallelujah, Jesus has set me free from my sin, amen. And you go back into the sin again. If I'm free to be a son, it does not mean I'm free to do as I please. But I am free to do as God pleases. 
Because unless he gives me that ability, I have no way to live the life that pleases him. Why is that? Why are we not free to do, to do as we please? Because of the attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our model for what it means to be a son. John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Is Jesus free? You bet he is. But what is his will? His will is not to do as he pleases. His will is to do what his father says. John 6.38 For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If the Son of God determines that he will do the Father's will, can an adopted Son of God think otherwise? If the Son of God from, from eternity has bound himself to do the Father's pleasure, can an adopted Son who has been raised out of the grave, out of spiritual death, can he suddenly say, I'm going to live as I please? It doesn't make sense. If you claim to be a son, if you love all the privileges that come with the title, but you're not really concerned about the responsibilities, then you've got some really serious thinking to do. Also, if you're not a son, wow, you need to stand before the cross and do some very serious thinking as well. Because if you reject the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf, then basically saying, thanks, but no thanks. I can bear the price of my sin myself. You don't need God to die for you. You don't need Christ to die for you. You are willing to bear the weight of God's wrath on you. It means that you are rejecting his offer of adoption. I don't know why anyone in their right mind would do that. The only reason why I can think that they might do it is if they think that they're already sons of God. But the word of God says you are not if you are not purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Here's the thing. There's, there's only two kinds of people in this world. They're slaves and their sons. There's no in-between state where, you know, God saves you, but He says, oh no, actually, you don't come into my house, you stay outside. You stay on the veranda. There's no in-between state where somehow God says, okay, yes, I save everyone, okay, but you, you're not too bad. Uh, you can come in and you can stay, but don't come near me. You're either a slave or you're a son. You're either a slave who deserves full condemnation or you're a son who has full rights and privileges. Which one are you? Calvary is where the rubber hits the road. This is not an ancient story on a page. This is history that has the power to change your eternity. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross to transform slaves of sin into sons of God. Why does, why, why does he say it is finished? That's why. The work is done. There's nothing left to do. Right now, you can be a son of God. Isn't that amazing? 
The Lord has done all that he needed to do. Question is now, what will you do? Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Father, we cannot thank you enough for Calvary. We thank you that in your wonderful plan, you saw fit to crush your beloved son so that we might become your adopted sons. So that we would not have to pay the price of our sins because he paid it for us. Father, may the sacrifice of love compel us to consider our present status. If we are not yet sons, may we repent at the cross and believe that your son has reconciled us to you. And Lord, if we are indeed your sons, then give us the strength and joy to live transformed, reflecting the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask all these things. Amen.